This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Fernando, can you share a brief background to your history in the in the waste industry? Sure, absolutely, William. Started back in 96, my uh, lovely wife, Alita, she was a commercial banker and one of her customers, Duol, uh, got bought out by Sanifa, a large U.S. waste company, the first one to enter the Canadian market that I know of, and uh, got an interview uh, with a Texan, Brett Sarver, who was the business developer, and hired me on the spot. And I got hired as a scale guy. And that lasted two days. The IT guys came from uh, the States, and this was more or less when USA Waste and Centerfield merged to create what we would know as Canadian Waste Services, which then became the Green Waste Management as we bought out the Burgundy Waste Management. But anyways, so they needed someone to drive them to all these new locations that USA Waste slash Centerfield were buying in, uh, in Ontario. And I just happened to know, uh, you know, be able to have my license and drive around. So I'm driving these IT guys around and I'm watching what they're doing. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why don't you do it this way? I think not knowing what Mm -hmm. I'm doing. Like I have zero. I got a marketing degree, went to university, but, you know, no practical experience. And they're looking at me strange going, well, that made a lot of sense. And by the time they were done within that week, I was now part of the IT team. For eight months, I flew across the country, U.S. and Ontario, point-of-sale systems, new systems that they brought. Systems are obviously very important. All over, landfills, transfer stations, part of the training, part of the development of the uh, software. Unbelievable. The unfortunate thing is they fired, they were firing everybody. So all the Laidlaw people and the Phillips people, all the original acquisitions, they were firing everybody. I didn't know anybody left. And I'm like, oh, I just had my first child. I'm like, I need to go back home. My wife's in tears. She's all by herself. I'm gone four or five days a week. Anyways, they threw me in this white elephant company down in New Toronto Street, which is uh, South Toronto, near downtown. And it was losing so much money. I still don't know anything, William. I mean, I know nothing. I go in there. It's losing lots of money. Ford was their biggest customer. And next thing you know, I started looking at it. And one of the first things I remember was Rod Proto was the chief operating officer of the new company, the the Santa Fe USA Waste merger. He came down, he's looking, he was really disappointed. The place was a disaster. Equipment was always breaking down. He's like, wow, this place is uh, quite a mess. And my operations manager said, ah, it's been a lot worse. And he didn't say a word, his disappointment on his face said it all. And all of a sudden, it just bells went off in my head. I'm like, this is wrong. We're doing something wrong. This should never be like this. Everybody's like, oh, we make money. We do this. Let's keep on doing it the same. And I had, because I didn't know anything. I didn't know any better. And I started changing the way waste was always done. I, I started looking at things that nobody ever looked at before. Why are we using that trailer? It has only four axles. Why aren't we using six axles? Why is this guy doing six and we're using four? Four is only 28 tons of load, and six is 36 tons of load. Next thing you know, I look like a hero. I'm like, wow. Mm. Then I got another district, the long haul business, and we did really good there, and I've never looked back. 
that simple. Uh, so taking a step back and look at the industry, like why are there so many smaller, you know, local companies in in this industry? It's a very easy business to get in. You just need one roll-off truck, a few bins, and know a few people. It's very simple to understand. You pick up waste, you bring it to a transfer facility or a landfill if there's one close by. It's something everybody can understand. People have a hard time understanding their own business, but when it comes to the waste part of their business, they're all experts. Everybody knows waste. Everybody cares about waste. It's it's fascinating. And you're right, because there are so many mom-pop stores. The original strategy by all these big companies was buy all these mom-and-pop companies, consolidate, rock and roll. Except for as soon as you bought one, another one would pop up. <laughs> And another one pops up. What is driving the consolidation in the market? Generally speaking, I mean, it's simple. It's density. When you buy a mom pa shop, their coverage is generally the same coverage as the big guys. The big guys have way more trucks. So now they're going from, you know, they're, they're traveling 100, 125 kilometers as their customer base is within that range. So they're not getting the maximum out of their equipment. So when you buy that mom pa shop, you now have, you know, two trucks in this area, two trucks in that area, two trucks in that area, a lot closer to the transfer stations or the landfills, and you just consolidate and you're just much more efficient. It's 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 not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It is very, very simple. And there's a and the pie, the waste pie is so big. It doesn't change. The total dollars doesn't change. Holly makes a little bit, transfer stations make a little bit more, landfills make the biggest margin. But that pie never changes until you get the GFL. Just on the point you made about, you know, another mom and pub showing up when you bought when you acquire one. Did, did that did that truly happen? Did you did, did, did you not see the number of companies actually decline over time given the consolidation? Well, we absolutely did, but after their uh, five year we can't compete, non compete. Their uncle, their cousin, their sons would open up other businesses. I mean, but again, their challenges remain the same. They're, ha- they're trying to cover the same area with less equipment. So, again, they're only, they're, they're only getting their small customer base back. Just different, right? I mean, by then you've consolidated so much and your, your, dent- your routes are so dense it doesn't matter if they start taking a little bit, nibbling, nibbling, nibbling. When it comes to the mom, pot, and I don't mean to disrespect them whatsoever, but it's a race to the bottom. When you get larger, you start understanding that there's real value in those assets and you need a return on those assets. And generally speaking, if you have investors and you have other people giving you money, that be higher. And there's room for that. There's room for that. There's room for everybody to exist. So you need the mom and pop shops, but you also need the big companies, best practices. That's why you have the waste management of the world, the waste connections, the republics, the Suez's and Veolia's out in Europe and and over Mm -hmm. the world. So everybody has a spot. And we can talk about root density and and M&A later on. But so how did you first get involved with GFL? Crazy. So I'm a district manager out of Waste Services. And... 
Waste Services merged with, uh, at the time it was BFI, but became Waste Connections. And I devised a plan with my boss, Rob Ross, where we would utilize certain assets were being underutilized in both companies. So we decided if we utilized this area, you utilize this area, we closed down some facilities. It was fantastic. What saw WSI sell was we were going to tie up all our tons because we were doing it with waste management. Waste management was going to control the tons that WSI had. And a company's worth, a large company's worth, is the tons it controls. The more tons it controls, the higher the value of that company, the bigger the multiple of that company. So as soon as Waste Connections or BFI at the time saw that we were tying up our tonnage with waste management for five years, my my boss and I, we said, you watch, it's never going to happen with waste management. They're going to come to a deal and I probably am going to be out of a job because I was a senior person making probably too much money. And the first phone call I got when BFI and, and waste Ma- or sorry BFI and WSI emerged, you know, about two weeks, three weeks, a month later was from Patrick Davigi because I had met him because he was cleaning up a site. It was his first avenue into the waste business. He befriended a, a gentleman that was worth a lot of money. They had a property. They rented it to some bad players in the marketplace. They filled up the property with waste. But the property was worth a lot of money. So the uh, ministry came down on the, on, the, on the owner of the company, on the owner of the land, sorry, said you had to clean it up. That's how Patrick got involved. That's where I met Patrick the first time, just a young guy. I think he was 32 years old at the time, you know, and he knew nothing. And the ministry was hired a third party to take care of the cleanup, charging them crazy amount of money. And I said, Patrick, you don't have to do that. Just because the ministry is telling you to clean up, you control your own destiny. This is what it costs. Let me clean it up with waste management. We save you a whole bunch of money. He's like, wow, this is no problem. Beautiful. So once WSI, which was maybe a year later, WSI and BFI merged, I got the phone call. Fur, Fernie Fernie. That's what he used to call me. Fernie Fernie. Fernie Fernie, you're getting let go. You need to come and work for me. I said, PD. I call him PD, Patrick DeVigi. PD, I appreciate the offer. I know I'm getting let go. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> but I feel like I'm going to take some time off. I took three three months off, four months off. He kept on phoning me. Boom. He hires me. And for three years, I was his right-hand guy. We we did an amazing job. We grew the company from $40 million to $400 million. Super, super guy. Have nothing bad to say. So what what actually attracted you to eventually join him? My whole life, all I knew was corporate world. And when we started all these acquisitions and we were smaller, smaller company, if you will, locally, we got to do whatever we wanted. It was like our company. Even though we were part of a bigger company, it was our company. And we did, we grew and we made changes and we were, you know, we, we controlled our own destiny. But the bigger the company, all of a sudden they start taking control. HR gets involved. Oh, you're in a box. You're at level seven. You're at level two. You're at level five. Oh, wait a second. Benefits? I'm going to tell you a little story. I'm a pretty big district manager, waste management, the, the green, the new, the one you know. And there's a big, big project Phoenix. And we want our customers to be gold. We, we want the best customer service. We want to be the best. We want you to make sure that we're the best. 
fantastic. Oh, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, drink the Kool-Aid. Let's go to Vegas. Let's have all the big shows. Get the Kool-Aid. We're the best. We're the best. We talk about benefits. I raised my hand. I'm going, I'm confused. We bought a company called Laidlaw at the time. And one of my mentors happened to be an older gentleman, been in the waste business forever, Barry Cormier. He passes away on our site. And his life insurance changed. His wife comes to me in tears. Fern, here, Laidlaw. His death benefit was X dollars. Now we're Canadian waste services or waste management. It's only this. I had no idea changes. So I start, you know, I, I, I don't drink Kool-Aid. I just tell it as it is. Mm-hmm. And goes up, hey, you want us to be the best so our customers get the best service, yet our benefits, what's going on with our benefits? They've changed and people don't even know they changed. Oh, they're industry standards, Fernando. Ding, 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 ding. Things are changed now. So you wanted to go back to an entrepreneurial journey with with, with, with Patrick? Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how would you describe his his style then in those early days? He was so involved. He he was involved in, in everything. Again, I had way more experience. You know, he was awesome finding money, had great relationships with people. There were so many non-believers, but he always kept on proving people wrong. So he just let me go. I mean, there's only so much you can know. There's a, you know, it's, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's so easy. And he just let me go. And together we just built at least the foundation. I can't say I was part of, you know, cause I haven't been there for seven years, but again, something that he, he learned or he knew very early on. There's only a few key people in each area that are significant, that are true leaders in the waste business. Whether it's in sales, whether it's in operations, there's only a few. So what did and you do there? there? We took them from the big players because they <laughs> put them in a box. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm curious. So you joined Patrick, you wanted to leave the big corporate world and now you're owning your own destiny. What did you do? What was the, what was the strategy you you, you and PD? Well, because we're buying mom and pop shops, they're not the best well run, right? They have their own accounting systems. They have their own way of making money. And, and, and that wasn't for us. We knew that we could, if we did it right, price increases, density, finding the right people, we could then create at least the foundation. We had no systems. PD, liquid waste has, because I got there, liquid waste, he had already made one acquisition. The waste has no systems. We have no idea what customer makes money, what customer doesn't. Everything is on a sheet of paper, right? Our IT is guys saying all he needs is two, three resources. He'll create his own software so we have information. Okay, go ahead. PD, we have no maintenance program. All these mom and pops, they're spreadsheets. They're little calendars. This is when the, you know, this is this 30-day, 90-day. We got to change this. We got. You have no idea what makes money, what costs money. You're blind. You're really, really blind. Fern, go get what you need. <laughs> we got best-in-class maintenance systems. And all of a sudden, we're getting all this information. When you have information, you are heads above the ma and pa so companies. What do they look like, these mom and pop companies? Like, how many people, how many, how many routes do they have? How many trucks, roughly? Like, what's the... Okay, if I use Ontario as, as just the basis, and it's similar, it doesn't matter where you are. I would say 
65, 70% of mom and pa's and the 30% are the bigger customers. And they would have anywhere from as few as three, four trucks, roll-off trucks to maybe 12. Then you have your medium-sized companies that might have 10 roll-off trucks and four front ends. And then you'll have maybe another two players, three players in a population of 8 million, 10 million that are relatively large that might have 35 roll-off trucks, you know, 20 front-end trucks, you know, and they have their own system. They're very well-run companies. But, you know, they're, they, they, they started 30 years ago and it's their babies. And they're very hard to acquire those companies because they don't want – their legacy – is the name on their trucks, right? As soon as you sell to a GFL, a waste management, you're 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 saying bye to everything. So what was the strategy for you then? What type of companies or markets did you go after? We went after just the 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 liquid waste, soil, and waste. That's what we did. We just started buying mom pop shops in in those uh, businesses and. The more the dense the routes, the more money we earn, the better the return, the the more the handcuffs got looser and the bigger the companies we bought. And and when Patrick goes in, and again, I don't speak for Patrick. This is what I witnessed. When he looks at an acquisition, especially in the early days, he wasn't looking at the roll-off trucks. And yeah, we looked at the assets and usually they were well run, but they were much older, but uh, whatever. You look at the people, every single acquisition we had, we kept all the people. There's not that many people around. But the things that was consistent in those mom pop shops was the systems. The systems were poor. The information they had was poor, but they were still making money. Could you imagine putting in the best practices in those companies? So what did you do? What are, what are, the, what are the best practices and what, did you, what, make, what changes did you make? All about systems, and every, every big company has their own systems. We use the third-party system called Trucks, but we obviously utilize to the depth that, that that system had. A lot of companies may have had the same systems, but they never utilized the system. They didn't understand how in-depth you could get. And I'm not the type of person that gets too in-depth, but there are certain things you need to understand in the waste business because otherwise – there comes to a point where a company becomes too large and then becomes the waste managements and the waste connections and the republics of the world. They're controlled but usually by accountants. And everything becomes a, a key figure. You know, we got to hit this return. we got to do isn't, this. Isn't there a risk GFL could get there now given the size they have? Or do you think? There's, there's no doubt it's going to get to that point. They're publicly traded now. People want to see a return. There's a lot of eyes on it. Do I think there's... There's uh, more growth available? Absolutely. But again, William, when you're a small company and you buy a company worth $10 million and you're only worth $100 million, that's 10%. That yardstick moves. It moves. There, there's real synergies, accretive, solid change. Then you go buy a billion-dollar company. Wow. You're big. Wait a second. Wait a second, William. Now, all of a sudden, you have all the synergies of purchasing power. You know how much fuel I use? You know how much tires? When you look at a financial of any company, generally speaking, labor might be your first, depending on what it is. In the waste business, it then becomes 
fuel, and then the operations of the trucks, tires, the nuts and bolts. Well, now I'm at such a size, the, the second and third largest component expense of that financial becomes your purchasing power. But there's less synergies, that arguably, in terms of like best practices and improving the... Yeah, the densities, cost. everything like that, it becomes... They're still out there, but, the, the, you know, if, if that billion-dollar company wasn't operating properly, then you've got yourself a, a whack load. And it becomes people because it's harder to find people because you're that much bigger, right? And then, uh, you know, one of the companies that, that I saw, when I was at WSI, Waste Services... The CEO at the time, David Selenios, and my boss, Rob Ross, they noticed that there's only a few key people that were really strong. So we were allowed to have many districts. We had many districts under our umbrella. And we went around to all the districts, and we really tried to mentor the local district managers with best practice. This is what we're doing down here. See if it works over here. Because not everything works in the area. It depends on your area. And we found that it worked really well. Then when BFI bought WSI... BFI was run by controllers. We don't need people like Fern. We want those district managers to concentrate on the districts. And then it becomes more of a money, you know, mm. it, it just is what it is. You get to that well, point. And so back to the M&A, like, so you buy these mom and pops, like you mentioned how you don't really fire anyone typically in the, in the no. business. So how do the costs change at all? Do you get rid of some of the trucks? Like how do you, There's, what do you actually do? I should, okay, the senior leadership doesn't change. Okay, so obviously administrative is probably your first thing. You consolidate the the invoicing, you consolidate the IT, the systems, you densify the routes. So if they were operating in trucks, take two trucks off the road. But generally speaking, you're growing at such a pace, all of a sudden you organically grow. You win a residential contract, you win the city of Toronto. No one thought GFL could ever win. Uh, a resi contract like that. Okay, well, wait a second. Now I just have to I have 80 people. Okay, well, we just acquired this company. So when the snowball starts, well, we, we like to say going up the hill. Yes, there's always nutrition. Yes, you're always densifying the roots and you're taking trucks off the road. You're doing all that wonderful stuff, but you always find good people in the homes. And generally speaking, the 80-20 principle rule, it doesn't change. You have 20%. Which driver do you want to get rid of? Okay, right? You know, it is what it is. And and usually speaking, if it's unionized, it's a little bit different. And, you know, there's certain ways that I get around. I'm not get around, but it's it's so easy. You really get to keep the strong players. But in the end, it's, it doesn't change. Big, small, you have your issues. You have your, your challenges. What was the story of winning that big resi contract? Well, again, I don't know if it's a secret. I don't think it's a secret. But when we, GFL at the time, and it didn't matter which company, I mean, they more or less do the same thing unless you get too confident. GFL was a new player on the block. We had purchased a company called National, which had some very successful residential contracts. Then Arlene, who's just started E360 again, he got bought out. He had a non-compete. Now he's back in the game, creating another Another good company, really, really good guy. Anyways, I hired a bunch of students and I, and I wanted them to follow because the city of Toronto was doing the service themselves. So the city of Toronto is such a big city. There's five separate areas done by uh, two of them, I think, were being done privately. 
uh, and the rest, or one was being done privately and four being done by unionized Toronto city workers. God bless them. Anyways, I hired students. I want you to follow all the trucks. Follow, yeah. I want to know what time they start, what time they finish, when they go to lunch, you know, when they finish their day, if they fuel, if they don't fuel. It was unbelievable how inefficient the resi contract was being run. And the way the city of Toronto put in their RFP, the request for proposal was, if your bid is over $30 million, we will not open up the envelope. Okay, we know we have to be better than $30 million. Again, my philosophy is I don't care what other people are bidding. I bid what I know I can control and I, I know what my costs are. I really don't care if, uh, you know, Joe Blow company prices are lower. So next thing you know, I have all this information. We bid it at a certain price. Patrick says, no, Fern. It was the only time he ever said no. So what do you mean no? Like, what do you know? He goes, we need this. I live in this area. I want the trucks. I think we're going to get so much more public relations by having all our trucks on the road in Toronto. You're right, Patrick. I didn't. It's not part of my performa. I don't put what the what the visual impact is going to be. So he lowered it. We won. My price would have won too, anyways. We won the contract, and again, we never looked back. All we did was grow, so grow, grow, grow. Why, why were they so inefficient then? The the city of Toronto when they were running the. You know, I hate talking bad about people, but they had because of bylaws. You have to start no earlier than seven a.m. City of Toronto starts at 7 a.m., but they haven't fueled the trucks yet. So they start fueling the trucks. The last truck doesn't go out onto his route until 9 o'clock. Okay, I'm not a brain surgeon, but if all my trucks are fueled up at the end of the night and they start at 7 o'clock and they're all on their very first pickup, how much money do you save? They had 25, 30% of their employees, supposedly, I don't know if it's a real number, that's what was told to us, on workman's compensation, which means they got hurt on the job. And so, and they didn't maintain their trucks at night. They only maintained them in their day, during the day. So how much more trucks do you actually need to maintain a contract? It was insane. I couldn't believe it. But they learned real quick. So in three months, we had less complaints from residents than they did doing the contract forever. So obviously the unions knew that they were done. Like they had still three districts. So they changed the way they did the business. They used more or less what we were doing and no other areas have come up for a public tender. So they're keeping what they had and uh, GFL, uh, I think uh, controls one district and another district. I believe it was Miller or something like that. So, you know what? It's uh, It was a good lesson for all. The unionized, the city, and GFL. How do you look at root density when you're acquiring an asset then? Is there a certain calculation do you, that you'd look at to see if you could hit a certain rate? Yeah, or? I, yeah I know where you're coming from. It really depends. I mean, in a roll-off truck, usually it's number of lifts in a day. But really, it's not lifts in a day because it's how much revenue that truck makes in a day. So, you know, some people would be pounding their chest. Oh, my truck does 10 lifts a day. But four of them were deliveries. Only three of them were paid. Two of them were removal. So how much money did the truck make? In the end, it's revenue per day. 
So there are other, there, you know, the accountants love to look at all these different metrics. To me, it's easy. It's revenues per day. How much revenue that truck made? What drives the revenue per day? Usually the, uh, how profitable the customer, how tight your maintenance programs are and how efficient your drivers, uh, drivers are. And, you know, there's, uh, there's so many softwares out there that help you put in what day they have to be picked in and it spits out the rut runs now for for drivers you know what i mean but the way i look at it is i'll spend a couple weeks with with you know a certain line of business say it's the front end runs and i'll go to the driver say hey this is what the software say but you guys know the customers you guys know the runs you guys know the school zones when you can can you please mark on your papers on your route sheets what makes sense, and it's something new. Usually, they'll receive it and they'll go, "Yeah, that doesn't make any sense." But they never change anything. They don't. They don't communicate. It's a, It's when you get more involved than Patrick in the beginning. Obviously, now is a completely different animal. He was really involved, not necessarily to the route density and any of that. But if a driver wanted to talk to him because I wasn't doing my job or a district man, that door was always open. Our doors were always always open. Always open. He just loved it. We had a couple of union drives. Yeah, these guys got sold on, you know, uh, Teamsters want to unionize out in Windsor. And they're showing them, uh, you know, rates where, you know, there's uh, 50 years of unionization. And, you know, it'll never happen, right? And, and we always paid our guys a little more than union waste hauler rates. Anyways, okay, Fern, we take the plane. We land in Windsor. Talks to everybody. He's such a likable guy. And they start realizing that there's only so much a, a, a company can pay, and they're getting paid more than the competitors. So, you know, they can show you whatever you want, but the reality is if you really want a guy that makes on an assembly line, go work on an assembly line. And we were 100%. We were batting 100. Not one of our districts unionized when I was there. A couple tried. They all failed because we always paid them a little more. Their benefits was always a little bit better. It was, well, uh, you know, I mean, that's part of the culture, right? And and just take the the Toronto example for, you know, the city there. You won you won the the resi deal. How does GFL compete with the bigger companies at the time? So Waste Connections or anyone who was present in that city. Like, what? How does the what do you really compete on? Well, that's fantastic. That's a great question. Waste management can never make money in the residential business. They left the door open. We took the door. We changed the way we did things, and we actually make money, right? So the waste management never had a really good, for whatever reason, they just weren't good at it. Locally, Ontario, I can't talk about other places because it's completely different in the, in, in the States. It's subscription, and you could have six different haulers pick on the same street. I mean, it's... It's a completely different animal. But over here, municipalities keep control of their own waste, and all you got to do is pick it up, and they have zones, and you bid on the zones, and, you know, it really helps pay for the foundation, helps pay for your administration, your accountants, and it's a great base. And once you pay for your base, then you can buy the mom pops and do the roll-offs and the front ends and your rear packers and all the other things all come together. So residential is a good, good foundation for a company, but you really need strong people because you have a lot of people. You have, you know, 80 trucks on the road. Uh, you don't have, you know, five or 10. 
you know, so it takes, it takes people. And that's what Patrick, I, if you ask me what Patrick's, besides his suave into having people like him and believing his story and believing his vision and, and his strength in, in understanding the whole fin- financing of, of where he needs to be and where he is and where he wants to go is people. He, he makes people stronger than they really are. Not necessarily with me, because I, I was already strong, <laughs> but everybody else. And that's how he gets loyalty. That's how he tracks the stars. There's only a few stars in the business. We took the number one sales guy locally from waste management. Patrick told me, I, you'll never succeed. Not a chance. And the number one maintenance guy, not a chance. They've been there forever. They don't want, they're comfortable. So you're telling me not to go? No, no, I want you to go, but I don't think you can do it. You know, like, ah, I don't think you can do it, Fern. How did you do it then? How did I do it? <laughs> waste management already put their, and again, I shouldn't call it waste management. <laughs> the other waste company, they already had the noose around their necks. How much you make? Oh, you make X. Okay, I'll pay you X. And you're, you know, you're severed. So I've been working there forever. Well, the most you'll ever get in Ontario is two years. So what's your two years with your measly pay? What's it worth? Oh, it's worth a. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a signing bonus. I'll pay you 50% more. What? Yeah. Well, if you net the company 10 million and all of a sudden you're making 200, you're making 100 grand more than you were making before. You went and go to the, the best guys in, in the area from the. Yeah. Yeah. It's it. You know, when I interview for, you know, I interviewed a few times, you know, for, for what's your biggest strength? My biggest strength is knowing the right people because I can't do it alone. Yeah, I'm a real smart guy and I've done, you know, I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. I've accomplished a lot. But if the people around me are not strong, there's only so much I can do. Hence, I have a loyal group of people if I really wanted to. And I, I, they'll still come and work for me because... You know, I, I'm one of those guys people want to work for because I treat people. I might be the VP of operations, but my title might be different, but we're both the same. I treat the driver just like I would treat myself, just like the salesperson. Just We're all equals. Our titles might be different. Our responsibilities are different, but we're the same people. We need everybody. And and people have a hard time. You know, I'm the boss. I'm this. I'm that. Well, and so how did, how did GFL really approach the roll-up differently than other companies in the industry they they didn't they they, and they don't to me the the base model of the waste business as you would know it is roll off front end transfer stations to landfills waste is very easy someone produces the waste has the waste a waste company picks it up bulks it up send it to either landfill transfer station for further bulking or to a processing facility like a recycling center. So in fact, if you just break the waste industry like most people see it, it's just a bulking business. You bulk it up and you send it off. Yes, you might process it. You might take out some metals. You might take out some wood. You might take out some cardboard. You might send it to a processing facility for recycling. It doesn't matter. You bulked it up. What Patrick did, he created the soil business. So the waste managements of the world, and I mean just the generalities, not, not picking on any, any company, they also do soil, but their soil goes to the landfill. So it's the same pie because it went to the landfill. That pie is over here. Patrick created a whole new pie. So he, was, he had the same waste, the waste management pie, but he created a new pie. 
soil, remediation. Bring it in by the ton, process it, take it out by the load, because now it's clean. It's a whole new pie. And all these other waste companies are like, holy shit, he's taking all the soil. Well, you guys, because you had these big, costly landfills, you're just sending it to landfill. You're burying it. Well, the landfill could only accept a certain amount of tons per year. So they're capped. Pie doesn't change. Well, Patrick realized that. Now, again, I'm, t- I'm putting words in his mouth. But he created a whole new pie for himself. What was the story that you created in that soil remediation business then? The story I was told from Patrick was he had a girlfriend and the dad uh, lived in a house that was originally heated by oil. So it had a buried uh, tank. So the, the dad was really busy. Patrick, can you look after him? Patrick had nothing, knew nothing of waste. So he phoned some companies up. Soil remediation. Yeah, it's uh, leaking. Oh, it's going to cost you. What do you mean it's going to cost? Oh, yeah, big dollars. So this little small tank on the side of a house cost, I can't remember what the number was, say $15,000. He's like, holy jeez, that's expensive. Next thing you know, he does a liquid waste acquisition. There was a big piece of property that came with it. I'm going to do soil remediation because I hear we can treat the soil and now it's non well, it's always non-hazardous, but it's not hydrocarbon impacted anymore. It meets the regulations. And now all of a sudden I can get rid of it by the load. Bring it in by the ton, charge by the ton, get out by the load. So the margins were huge. So where your waste managements of the world, big companies had their own landfills making that big piece of the pie. We never had any landfills when I was around. We would make agreements with ones that controlled it. But we had a soil business that made as much margin as their landfills. So, so how does it work then? So let's say with the landfill and the transfer session, so you you'd pick up the waste. Obviously, you get a fee from the, the municipality customer. or customer or whatever it is. And then how does the pricing for the landfill work? It's all in there, right? So you pick up a customer for, say, $1. We'll just, we'll just use $1 as, as an example. A hauling company just makes the least amount of money. Like the the margins on hauling companies are very small. And I'm not, these are not the right numbers. I'm just using as an example. It takes 5% of the pie, the revenue. So I received the dollar, five cents goes to the hauling company. Now I have to bring it to the transfer station. Well, the transfer station will bulk it up. It now has the majority of the cost because it has to take it to a landfill. And generally speaking, landfills are outside of the city, so they're far away. So it costs a lot of money to take it to these landfills. And generally speaking, landfills, especially in Europe, $150 a ton, the majority of the revenue goes to the landfill and that, that transportation, if you will. But because that truck can pick up many different customers, they receive more revenues. They don't do it $2, $3, $4. I, I picked up 10 customers. Or front end might pick up... Uh, I don't know, 80 customers in a day or 130 customers in a day. Depends on, you know, again, density, how, how much driving I got to do in a day. So, like I said, that pie doesn't change. If you own the landfill, the landfill makes the most money. Makes the well, most why, why didn't GFL own any landfill sites? Because we couldn't afford it. Couldn't buy a landfill. Those are assets that take forever to either acquire or to actually permit. 
people don't like landfills, right? Not near me, right? Near me, but not near me. If the, comp- the competitor owns the landfill, like, can't they kind of try and price you out of it? Or how does that pricing work with... Yeah, that would be really bad, right? Then the competition bureau comes in. They can't mm-hmm. do that. And those the appetites of those landfills, they need every single ton they can get. So, you know, we had a relationship with other large waste customers and, you know, they made a deal with uh, with Patrick. You, We bring you one ton into your transfer station. So you had a great transfer network. We bring you one ton, but we want two tons back. We want the one ton that we brought you, plus we want one of your tons. So everybody makes money, right? The, the philosophy I brought was, if it ain't good for you, it ain't good for me. I can make all the money in the world, but if you don't make any money, so you don't exist. How do you compete then in, in let's say, the, the more competitive markets that are not exclusive you know, to Waste Connections or, or one of the players? Like, How do you, if there's two or three waste, big waste management companies in a specific area? Because they're price leaders. They're price so you leaders. Compete, compete mainly on picking up the waste. Park, say again? So you compete mainly on picking up the waste and, and getting the tonnage. Yeah, you just acquire the customer at a very competitive rate, provide good service, and every six months you give them a price increase. Where you have your mature companies, your big, big customer, your big, big companies, they have customers that have been there for 10, 15 years, have been priced to death. We would go in markets, and I don't know if this is a secret, we would go in markets where those big players actually exist, where they're dominant. Because we know the pricing is very lucrative. That's what you want, right? So, the, the, do we did we have a, a magic wand? No, we worked our butts off. We had very strong systems in place so we could understand our costs. And the more we grew, the more purchasing power we had, and you become competitive in other ways because everybody does the exact same thing. You take a truck from a you go pick up your customer. That doesn't change. The in-between changes, right? The distance. So can we compete against the larger companies? Absolutely. Why? Because they need to price higher because they need a higher rate of return. Well, when you were privately held at the time, we didn't need that high of a return. Not as high. It all changes. There comes to a point where investor A wants the same as investor B. That's not going to change, Right. Do you have a competitive advantage? No, I don't see it personally. But Patrick created a new pie. Uh, we, we can talk about soil remediation, the, the new pie in a, in a moment. But back to the point on competitive advantage, like what is an advantage when you have multiple companies in one, one market? Like comes down to density is the biggest thing. The less kilometers you travel to earn a certain revenue dollar per day, the more money you make and obviously controlling your cost. The small mom and pop shops believe that a truck can last 20 years, 25 years because they don't understand if you spend $15,000 on that truck, once it gets too old and then another 5,000 and then you're spending another 10,000, that if you actually finance a new truck that costs you only $1,000 a month or $10,000 a year versus 30000 they don't have either the ability to understand the financing that's involved or they don't have the capital to do that because their margins are always much smaller. And the more sophisticated you are, your cost per kilometer or per hour becomes extremely more 
advantageous than the mom pause and similar to the larger players. The larger players are very well companies. Well, well, well let's, let, let's look at that now then, for example, because GFL is a completely different beast today, right? And so when you have these big companies competing in the same market today, how do you see you know, returns and, and the profitability changing for all the companies in one market? Well, it, it, again, I'm old school and I've been out of the game for five, six years, seven years now, you know, in terms of every day. The pie doesn't change, but COVID is interesting because now price increases are just going through. Inflation is a reflection of what's happening, not just in the consumer basket, you know, where you, where you go to your supermarket in the gas station. It goes on the, on the waste bill too, right? Extra charges, extra charges, extra charges. They're just, make, they're just charging more money for the same thing that was happening, you know, five years ago. COVID, uh, you know, you, you picked up less restaurant waste, but municipally, because people were home now, produced more waste. So we talk about seasonality or, or uh, why is it so, you know, consistent, the waste business? Because if the line of business and commercially, the you know, economic hard times hits, commercially your volume will drop, but governments, municipalities, schools, hospitals, <laughs> that changes. Right? Well, so how important is it to own landfill sites for a big... Uh, eventually, when you get to the size, I mean, it's the biggest margin on that waste part of business. So... Oh. I think it was Waste Industries was the big acquisition down in the States, and they had many, many uh, landfills. And that was the next uh, segue into, you know, the evolution of, of GFL. I think they, they also did a large acquisition over here, and they bought a couple landfills uh, over here, but they're more in the Ottawa area. Again, much smaller landfills. Uh, Michigan is uh, has so many landfills, and that's where most of Toronto's Garbage ends up is in Michigan. Those landfills are 10,000 tons a day. Local landfills might do, I don't know, 2,500 tons a day. Again, the difference in in landfills and, and that whole marketplace, much different between Canada and in the United States. And that, that drives the margin in, in the long run for, for the bigger companies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, they may create the facade, oh, we're green, we recycle, we do that in the end. They know that landfill makes 50, 60% margins. They're not changing it. They're not changing it. It's like the people that created the diapers, okay? They created the diapers. Mm. The diapers are made out of plastic and some fiber. But once the fiber gets contaminated, they're not recyclable. But do you have to, I mean, what are the advantages of owning the landfill rather than just not running that asset and just disposing it of on someone else's landfill. Well, you get to the size. And remember how I said the value of a company in the end is how much volume they control. So if you don't own that landfill, you don't control it. You don't control the volume. You're missing the biggest piece of the pie. So if the landfill makes 60% margin, and again, I'm just using round numbers. I'm not using exact numbers. How much are you really worth? What's your multiple? Now, all of a sudden, you've internalized and you own that landfill. Now you're worth the whole, you're worth the whole pie. There is an argument that 
in the long run, GFL should be trading at the same multiples, like waste connections. Is there any reason why this won't happen going forward? Not in terms of the assets they have. And again, I'm not a financial wizard. In my eyes, not absolutely, hundred percent. Why wouldn't they? Explain to me. Are the assets different though? They're better quality, more exclusive markets, more integration, or well, obviously they're much more mature. Those those class leading companies, they're more mature, absolutely. But there's only one way to go. You become mature yourself, right? I I can only speak when I was there. We were building a great foundation where the metrics were all the same. The metrics were all the same. What's waste management, waste connections? What have they done lately? For them to move the yardstick, it's almost impossible. But they're great run companies, mature, making good money and good margins. When GFL finishes their growth, whenever that is, they will then be that mature company because they're putting all the pieces together. At least that's what I would hope. Otherwise, who would give the money? Again, I don't look at their financials. I just look at the uh, the heading, the read, the, the heading in the newspapers. Oh, they beat their quarter end or whatever. I don't devolve. I don't uh, you know go into their finances or anything. I personally don't care. I wish the best because I think Patrick is uh, was a, a great boss for me, just because he, he I learned a, a different way of looking at things. You know, he he just. You know, it's not always about metrics, right? Metrics are great for the accountants and the, and the financial people, right? There's the intangibles that you can't, they can't put value on, right? And that's what I tried to impress on the businesses when I ran. Why was he so good at that? Like what, what made him so good with people? I think and- just natural. I don't think it was through any experience. I think it's just people, some people are born that way, mm. you know, and he was just born that way because... He didn't have a lot of experience in it. He was just, you know, at, at that level where people take many years to get to. I mean, I wasn't there. I just kept my eyes open, right? I watched what best in class was and I tweaked it because I never rested on the laurels of, well, this was the best way of doing it. I don't care what the... Like, was, was he in the weeds then or did he learn mainly from you? It seems like he was kind of doing the selling, raising the capital, and you were you were going out and buying the assets, or was that fair assumption? Did, did he learn from me? I, I think if he applied himself in that part of it, he would have understood. I, I don't think anybody learns from anybody. He never had to, right? Because if you surround yourself with the right people, you don't have to learn that side of the business. It doesn't mean you don't understand it. it doesn't mean you don't want to get involved. But when you're, when you're a growth company and – I mean, I don't know. I, again, I was part of waste management at the time when they were buying a company a day. I think that was the stat. I was part of the IT group. What happened to waste management? I don't know if you know the story. They were buying company a day, company a day, and then it just blew up. Stock went from, I think, 80 down to 30. The CEO, got, the CEO got toasted because it was... It becomes a point where you just you get so big you can't control it, right? In the end, you need to make money. You have to make money. Yes, you can invest in, in, in growth, you invest in growth, invest in the growth, but in the end there needs to be the return. You get to a point where it's diminishing returns. 
you have well, this, this is my question now about GFL because like I understand in the early days right when you're buying mom and pop shops yeah. 10 million EBITDA 5 to 10 million EBITDA, like you can you can make huge changes just from you know systems and the basic stuff yeah. when you're buying you know 200 million EBITDA and you know you're paying 1.2 billion it's it's completely different ball game right so how much organic EBITDA growth like profitability growth do you think you can really achieve when you're buying these big assets yeah i don't see organic growth being the driver it's so hard to grow right it's uh it's just like capital structure like financing and multiple arbitrage pretty much pretty much and finding again it's and this is again one of patrick's attributes finding the balance between do i spend capital on renewing assets or buy, use the capital to buy company. And it's a friggin' fine balance. And when I was there, you know, it was easy to show and illustrate because we had great systems, we implemented great systems, that a truck's value after five years, seven years, eight years, get rid of the asset, because then it just costs you money. In the end, it costs you lots of money. And the residual value of that asset and the cost that it bore was, you know, you know, that was the magic number. Now, it's probably impossible to do and attain, but those are some of the, uh, some of the metrics we were looking at because when, you're, when you were small or when GFL was small, you know, let's face it, get, get the new customer that way. It's much easier because to compete with the mom pause at low rates, you're not doing yourself any benefits, right? Acquire a little bigger company, Put in best practices. It's easier to change. It's easier to, to price increase a customer you have than either lose a customer or find a new one. That's simple. So how, how did you look at the maintenance and acquisition spend capital allocation question? How did you balance that? Because we acquired a lot of ma shops, all the equipment was old, right? So I don't think we really had... A finite analysis going, okay, well, 10% of the equipment. We basically said these are just the pigs of the equipment we have. we got to get rid of them. Like, there's no, you just, Patrick, I'm telling you right now, you, you can't. You have to give us a couple of roll-off trucks, two finans. Those are the minimums. Use the other capital to acquire, you know, and then we would look at areas. And, and, and once you create a name for yourself, you just have to sit back. People are phoning you, eh? Hello, hello, hello. Two years ago, uh, sorry, not not two, three, maybe four years ago, China came out and said, we're not taking any more of North America's garbage recycling. What happened? The commodity rates tanked. The recycling companies were doing terrible. Patrick buys the biggest recycling company in Canada, Canada Fibers. His timing is impeccable. Why? Because commodity pricing is going to come back up. He's just, I don't know, he's a natural... He just makes the right acquisitions at the right time. As uh, Again, I don't have a lot of comparisons. Yeah, I met my previous CEOs, but I was never close to them. I was the guy down at the bottom. They were The companies were so big at the time already. Mm-hmm. Was what was not- he doing on a day-to-day basis, though? Was he, was he kind of, was he dealing with more like the bankers, the financing, or was he really on the ground with you and dealing with... Operations. No, and he was, and- yeah, I don't think unless I asked for his help, you know, to, to visit the different districts and we would always have barbecues 
he would, you know, not all the time show up, but he would show up once in a while. You know, people knew who Patrick was. I mean, but then again, it was a relatively small company. Now, is he on his yacht <laughs> in the Mediterranean? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I have no idea. But in his defense, if I text Patrick within 30 seconds to a minute, he'll text me back. So I don't know what that means. But it means he's got his phone with him. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so it doesn't happen to everybody. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just thinking more now with the size of GFL and you know, clearly he's got the character and the ambition to, to get the business to, to where it is. What do you think are the biggest challenges in operating GFL today, given the scale and the size of the acquisitions? Once in a while, I actually ponder that question because the bigger you get, a lot of things come easy. But again, that yardstick gets bigger and bigger and bigger. How do you make those changes? And and most recently, I just read that uh, they bought Coco Paving, which is a large asphalt concrete company up in, up here in Canada, and they're divesting the infrastructure group from GFL. And taking ownership of it. And, yeah, and yeah. taking it private, if you will, mm. starting a new business. And at first I thought he wanted to, when he was buying all these companies in the States, they were your regular waste companies. They did the exact same thing everybody else. So I thought maybe he was going to integrate vertically and get into infrastructure and and yada, yada. But I guess in his mind, he's now found a way where I think potentially GFL might be maturing and he realizes it, but he's going to do a lot of growth on the infrastructure, but they're still joined. I, I believe they're still joined in ownership somehow or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they spotted out privately and he's taken, taken an ownership and he's, on the, he's the chair as well. Yeah, like GFL still owns some ownership, yeah. right? And, and remember, the, 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 the synergies in all these different things, and again, he is truly different than the waste company. He's an integrated, fully integrated environmental waste company, right? Those infrastructure company uh, customers, they have waste, they have soil, they have business development, excavating. So was he first to go in there then? Oh, absolutely. I don't know any, any infrastructure. Yeah. Absolutely. No one else. Who, who did? I, I'm not aware of anybody here. <laughs> not in North America. Nobody. Nobody. Yes, they did soil, but soil is not infrastructure, right? Excavation, road building. They made a couple of big acquisitions. Forming companies. Well, so he, he would go and take the, the, the kind of the debris and the, the, the stuff from those big jobs, the infrastructure jobs, or he would deliver it. What, what's the... What's the What's the He's work digging there, the holes. Right? He's got an excavation company. He digs the holes too. And then he, yeah. So he, and then he takes the obviously the the stuff through his. Yes, through the he network. internalizes. That, that's what we call internalization. So, the basic waste management strategy is: sign up the customer on paperwork, take his waste, bulk it up, send it to a transfer station, a direct to landfill, or send it to a landfill and control internalize. Right. But when you look at infrastructure, he created a new pie. Right, because that pie never changes, and I, I can't reiterate that pie doesn't change. But he's created his own pies, two pies, <laughs> technically two pies. Yeah, and the, and again, you only have certain big business developers, right? And every city is the same, right? They have some big names, and two, three control 
the majority of the business development, whether it's residential, commercial, uh, you know, the skyscrapers, uh, the, the commercial buildings, there's only a few. Well, guess what? If I do the farming for you and I dig the hole for you, I'm going to get your waste. I'm going to, it just, it made but so it, much sense. It was simple, but it was brilliant. But, but what, why, if it's so good, why is he selling it? Why is he spitting it out of GFL? Yeah, but GFL still has ownership. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, so he's not, he's not, not truly true, selling it. Like, I don't know why. I, I, I'm, not in, mm. I'm not in his headspace. Mm. There's got to, like those, like the, the guy from BP uh, Financial, uh, there's an, a, a gentleman name. Uh, from what I hear, he's also extremely bright. Right. So they, they obviously see maybe there's a difference in getting the capital if you're privately owned versus being publicly owned. Maybe there's differences and only they can explain that. I, I have no idea. But, but, but the synergies are true because I remember reading the old, old filings and it does say that there is, you know, we believe that the first on site with customers in the infrastructure space does drive cross selling to solid and liquid waste services. So that in your mind is really actually true. You did see that play out. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The the liquid waste customer, they don't have garbage. Of course they have garbage. Why can't it be the same customer, uh, the same service provider? Absolutely. That's all we did. We worked with liquid waste. Okay. Well, your obvious customer has garbage too. Can we sit down and talk with the decision maker? It's so much easier when, when you communicate with the different lines of business, because we, we always had more lines of businesses than our competitors, right? The more people you know, the more chances you're going to be successful. Why didn't the existing waste companies do this? Why don't they do this? Beats me. I mean, uh, again, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound critical of them because I own a lot of their stock because they're, they're <laughs> Very well, companies that provide great returns, dividends. But you own GFLs as well, or not? Do I? I own some, not a lot, just because you know set sentimental value, if you will. Sentimental. But you, value. but you also own more of waste connections or waste management for just because they're bigger. I, I'm really diverse, but okay. yes, waste companies are part of my portfolio because they're very consistent. They go up, they go down, but they never crash like PayPal. You want to talk about crash at 50%? What are you kidding me? Waste management could never do that in terms of their uh, a publicly traded company. Never. It's not it's impossible. Unless, you know, some crazy stuff happens. But then again, they'll be first to rebound. So, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Microsoft owner there, never sell, just buy and keep hold. There you go. What, what's the biggest risk to GFO in your mind? Running out of money, right? You get to a point, you, you have to buy. You always have to move that yardstick because right now people see GFL as a growth company. If you run out of money and you can't buy companies, now you're being judged by different parameters. Right? You're being judged by the quality of your EBITDA, your margins, and then you're going to be judged just like the waste management and the waste connections. So it's going to be a balancing act, I assume, for these guys. You know, when growth is going to start slowing down and providing the margins and the consistency of the of the bigger companies, because everybody loves to compare everything, even though they, they shouldn't be comparable. But now he just made himself comparable because he took the infrastructure out. But he's a smart guy. I'm guessing, you know, that he's it's going to work out for him because 
the customers are, are, are the same, and he's got them from the very beginning, right? He, he doesn't wait for the building to be built. He's there at the ground level. And infrastructure is going to be a huge role in the next few years because governments with COVID, all this spending, I mean, what, in the States, what are they spending trillions of dollars yeah, in years? It seems like he's, he's building like a mini GFL in infrastructure. Yeah, my, my guess is it might go private after, uh, not private, it might go public, right? Build it up, mm. go public, yeah. and then everybody cashes out. I mean, I, I don't know. Whatever he's doing, it's well thought of and it's going to be successful. Uh, that's all I've seen. So I, I don't. I, why I would ever think uh, otherwise, I don't know. Well, like you said, everyone does compare GFL to to all these bigger companies or competitors. You know, what one point is is the margin profile, right? And obviously, it's quite hard to see what the true margins and profitability is of GFL because it's growing so quickly. But there does seem to be a gap in the EBITDA margin. You know, four or five percent to waste connections, for example. Is there any reason in your mind, based on the markets they're in, the assets they have, the contracts they have, that would determine that GFO would have a, maybe a structurally lower margin for any reason in the long term? I don't know enough about what they do today. But what I can tell you is when you're buying companies, regardless of their size, they all can get better. They could all improve their margins. If Waste Industries wasn't a wasn't a publicly traded company, I don't have to go in there. I know they could have done better, because my guess is they don't. They're not best in class, right? So when you when you buy these larger companies, it just takes a little while, but you know you can get them to the same margins as any other uh, waste leading uh, company. What is it? Price increases, get rid of customers that. You don't make any money up or out. Like it's not that difficult. It takes time. So it's all a matter of time. He will get there because it's it's not difficult. What, what do you mean? He's got the he's got bad customers and other companies have good the good customers. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Well, with, with the price increases, what, one thing that that really piqued my interest. So he mentioned obviously now with the inflation last quarter they're going to increase the price increases. They're actually increasing it more than inflation, which should improve their margins. Like, how did you approach those price increases with customers? Did you typically was it you know one two percent ahead of inflation every time to, to grow your margin, or was there a certain strategy you used? And it was an interesting conversation. So. I'm a nobody. I have all these salespeople reporting to me, and we're going to do our one and a half percent price increase. One and a half. Why not five? What do you mean? Well, the customers are going to freak. Five percent. Oh my goodness. Ah. And I, okay, okay. What's the worst that can happen? They're going to leave us. Oh, they're not even going to phone? They're not going to phone and tell you that they're upset? Isn't that just human emotion? Well, if they phone, guess what happens? Oh, we made a mistake. Sorry. Let's negotiate. If you ask for one and a half, they're still going to phone. You might as well start at five, settle on three. And I am telling you right now, it's unbelievable. It changed everybody's way of doing business, at least the people that I'm with and, and originally with uh, GFL. So, you you know, the way you put it, oh, one percent, one and a half percent. William, ask for five. What's going to stop? Did it go through often? Or did, did, what did the customer say oh, yeah. for five? Absolutely. It's the only reason why. Uh, when I was at WSI, I, I bet you our margins, we, we averaged 17%. Bottom line, 
increase every year. How the heck do you get 17. 17%. How do you get there? With a 1% price increase? Not a chance. 17% increase in EBITDA per year. And that was all coming through price. Yeah. Average. And because people don't believe, like, and again, we were a young company. We we had acquisitions. And, you know, when you buy the mom pass, there's so many low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Right? So, again, I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not... Oh, way to go. I'm just saying the expectation. When I when I went to my first budget meeting at WSI, John McGarvey, he said, Fern, we need a 5%. 5%. I want 5%. 5%. Okay. Whatever. I, you can make a 10. I'm not going to change my – I'm not going to change the way I, I work. I don't make as much money as I can. I got 17. Then the expectation is, Fern, I want 17. <laughs> well, we can't do 17. But, it was but a, what does the customer say to that, though? I mean, if you're increasing prices to – and when the customer complain, again, you have to provide good service. If you don't mm. provide good service, then you can't, right? We, I think we were one of the first ones to implement uh, fuel surcharge, right? Fuel was going up. We were making less margin. Why do we got to pay fuel surcharge? Everybody sees it at the pump. It's the most visible thing. So instead of putting in with a CPI increase, we always separated fuel. And I think all the big companies do it now, FedEx, they all do it, where fuel is a separate component. Depending on where fuel is, your surcharge changes, the percentage of cost. So, you know, again, I'm not going to get into the numbers, but it varies. If fuel goes up, you go. So you always, always, always make either the same money or, as Patrick put it, the higher the inflation, more money we make. Because you add a bit on, on, on top. But you have to. William, that's just business. That's just business. Mm -hmm. And if everybody does the same thing, which they should, everybody just makes more money. How, how in COVID, could you actually, before COVID started, could you imagine if, if someone came to you and said, if a pandemic hit, nobody went to work, and they were lockdowns, would companies make the most money they've ever made? What would, what would your first, not a chance. What happened? Everybody's making more money. It's insane. What, what's, what's the risk, though? Like, what, which, which costs can you not pass through, if any, to the customer? I think you can pass through anything. I don't see why you couldn't pass it off. It's a legitimate, it's a legitimate cost to you. Then you can pass it on. What's mm-hmm. the biggest risk in your mind, then, in terms of, like, margins for these companies? What really what goes wrong? It's the waste business. I mean, for Patrick, it's more about infrastructure if they stop building, because no one has money, governments don't have money, and, and, you know, there's a big economic turn, I see infrastructure just getting hammered, personally. Again, it's just my thought, like, if you're not building, okay, so now that whole line's a business, and because it's integrated with all the other ones, so I would say, in my opinion, which isn't, you know, worth much now, I've been out of the game for seven years, if infrastructure becomes a bigger, bigger, bigger part, even though it's privately held in a, in a different balloon, it's just going to now hit many other lines of business because it's all integrated, right? But otherwise, uh, CPI, inflation, l- 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 the higher it goes, the more money you can make. But if people stop building because there's an economic downturn, a depression, you know, then it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. And because he's not the well-oiled machine, because he's growing, 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 and it's 
you gotta you gotta be able to put all those pieces together. It's gonna impact them more. I mean, it's just the way it is, right? Anything else in terms of the risks on the solid waste business for GFL? Well, why do you always gotta say GFL? Well, I'm right, just. <laughs> Don't it's the most, ex- it's the most excited, right? <laughs> I know, but it's not. GFL is a well-run company. It's not just Patrick. He's got a lot of a lot of great people. Well, I, the question is also more broadly. I guess what I'm curious about is you know, it's such a resilient industry. You can pass through all the costs. Like they're sticky customers. What can what can really go wrong? Is, is it just an operational question, like an execution, having the right team? having the operations in place, like what yeah, really goes so wrong? Big. So even if, you know, whatever, some small township, you know, isn't poorly run, it's just too big right now. It's not going to, it's not going to move the needle either way. You're not going to have a fundamental a meltdown, whether it's GFL or any other waste business. It's just not built that way. It's not built that way. Locally, you have your synergies. How do you have a, a meltdown? There's there's no such thing as meltdowns. Yeah, you might not make. What happened money. to that company you mentioned before that went bust? It's yeah, the waste yeah. management you see today. What, what do you mean? It's what, what, it's, what it's the most. What happened? What happened to it when it when it when it blew up at that time you mentioned? It just put in the systems, start getting up or out price increases, and became the waste management today. Nothing really happened. They mm-hmm. just got to that point where. You know, the investors said, you know, you got to stop growing. We're not giving you any more money. Okay, well, oh, wait a second. Now we got to make the right margins and the right profitability as a mature company. So, of course, it tanked. But within a year, it's, year and a half, it, it was a pretty good business, right? <laughs> it's a pretty nice it's a great business. business. It's a great business. And one of my first, uh, Brett Sarver, he said, Fern, if you make it seven years, You'll always, always, always be in the waste business. It's the only thing that changes is the name on the guy's shirt. <laughs>